All right, we're in Galatians chapter 6 tonight, verses 9 through 18. Galatians 6, verses 9 through 18. Now you'll notice I've included two of the verses from where we were last week. I've done that for a reason, so I'm going to read to you verses 9 to the end of the chapter. And Lord willing, this is where we will actually end up tonight. So, Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, And let us not grow weary in, of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may, be, may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. <clears throat> There's a lot here, so let's just jump right into it. As we wrap up our study of Galatians tonight, I want to start with the last two verses of our last section. Paul would not have told the believers to not grow weary in doing good unless this was a strong possibility. And I, I don't want to just gloss over that. I want you to understand this is an area that the enemy is going to try to attack. This is an area where Satan is going to try to bring you discouragement. And it is a strong possibility that you will be tempted to grow weary in doing good. If you remember last week as we got together and we looked at the law of the harvest and how Paul was teaching the law of the harvest, which the Bible had taught all the way through. If you understand anything about the harvest, you plant, you don't immediately see fruit. There's a process of watching it. And even during the harvest or during the growing season, if you will, there's questions sometimes as to whether or not there's going to be a harvest. And we, so for that reason... <laughs> We may not see the, good, the fruit of our good works and our faithfulness and our obedience right away. And we're living in a society today, if you admit, and we've talked about this in times past, where we actually, we expect things to happen fast now. You know, it's just, some of us are old enough to remember you order something and wait two to three weeks for delivery. Nowadays, and we've talked about this before, You've gotten out of line between ordering at the Burger King window and the drive through actual paying because it took too long between when you ordered and when you went to pay. Remember? And we've talked about that. Some of us have confessed to the fact that we've done that. And others have confessed that if they didn't have that stinking curb, we would have done it more. We are impatient. We're in a microwave society. But God has set up that obedience to him will be rewarded at the harvest and in due time, as the scripture says here. And I want to remind you from some stories from scripture about the fact that you might not always see the results or the fruit of your good work right away. Think about Joseph. Joseph avoids sexual sin. And what happened? He did what was right in that situation. When you think, man, God should bless me for this. Uh, this woman was asking me to cheat with her against her husband. I, I had the opportunity, but I did the right thing. And he ran from that situation. Timothy says, flee youthful lusts and that sexual immorality. What happened when he did the right thing? He was accused of rape and he went to jail. 
Well, where's the fruit of that good work? Well, don't be weary in doing good. In due season, you will reap. Jesus, by the way, we could spend the whole study just looking at Jesus' life and how very little evidence, you know, his, his own mother and brothers, you have to realize this is Mary. His own mother and brothers think he's out of his mind. I mean, they've been watching him grow up as God, not just man, but as God. They've seen that there's something different about him. In John 7, his brothers are making fun of him. And they say, well, if you really are someone that's going to be a big shot, you should go to the feast. And then in Mark, we see around chapter 5, when he's in this house and all these people are gathered, when his mother and brothers are outside saying, hey, you know, if you look at the context, it literally says they thought he was out of his mind. They thought he was crazy. Well, where's the evidence? I mean, where's this fruit of my good works? On top of that, here he is doing good, healing people. And they said, what? You're doing this because you got demons. You're demon possessed. Beelzebub's giving you this power. So Jesus himself, you know, the 12 guys that he hung out with and poured into his life into for three years. One of them never was one. And he actually turned them in. And the others did what? They all ran. They all left. Let's go on. How about Jacob? Jacob worked for seven years in order to marry Rachel. And what happened? Father-in-law tricked him. That's why I made sure Becky lifted the veil before I said I do. You know? and, uh, but at the same time, you know, it's that, but Harry, he did work hard. And then he had to work seven more years to get Rachel. How about Moses? Moses obeys God's commands. He has the, a lot of people haven't really looked at this. Moses has the experience with God at the burning bush where he meets God. And God says, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. And God says, I want you to go back and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses does a hard thing. You've got to keep in mind who Moses is. Why had, when was the last time he was in Egypt? <laughs> yeah, when he had killed the Egyptian. He now had to not only go back to the place where he was a wanted man, he had to go back to the powers that be and go to the king and say, <clears throat> let my people go. And there was a chance that they would remember him. He, they might have had a wanted poster laying around there somewhere. And he does the right thing. Does anybody remember what happened? Because we always see the end result. We, we see them getting out of Israel and all this, I mean, out of Egypt and, and to the promised land. Does anybody remember what happened when he went back the first time and said to Pharaoh, let my people go? Exactly. Pharaoh said, sounds like you guys got a lot of free time coming up with these plans to go out in the wilderness. I'll tell you what, same amount of bricks, you slaves. And now you have to get your own straw. And not only did he make the work harder, you go look. The Israelites hated his guts. It blew up. They were wanting to kill him right there. Yeah, thanks for the help, Moses. And actually, if you look at what he does as he leads the people in obedience to God all the way through, what did he deal with? Complaining, just issues. Let's go back. Who put you in charge? Folks, we could spend the whole study tonight just talking about all the examples in the scriptures of how you don't see the results of your obedience right away. That's what, I, we're not going to have time to get into this. I, I recently taught uh, uh, in a couple of places, and one was in some of y'all Sunday school class, about in Romans 8, 28, how God will cause all things to work for the good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And we have automatically started to try to look for the good that's going to come out of every situation. 
You know, someone, some, someone dies and we, we, we weren't expecting it. We're kind of devastated by the fact that they died at such a young age. But then we'll say, oh, well, so-and-so got saved at the funeral. Oh, I can see some good. We, we want to see the good right away. But if folks, and we don't have time to go back there and do this study, you go look at the context of Romans chapter 8. The context is heaven. The context is down the road. Paul starts off in verse 18 by saying, I, don't, I consider that our present sufferings aren't worth being compared to the glory to be revealed. Creation is waiting for the sons of God's to be revealed. Those of us who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, which is down the road. And the same Holy Spirit that knows things that you don't know is within you, praying for you according to God's will. And we can know that God will cause all things to work for good for those who love Him. But we immediately in our microwave society have tried to read that into now. We start looking, well, God's going to cause good to come out of this. So we start looking. The, the passage in Romans never promises that that will be seen in this life. Sometimes yes, but it, not always yes. And if you keep reading in verse 29, those he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those he predestined he called and those he called he justified and those he justified he what? Glorified. In the full context, the passage is saying you might not see it till the end. But we have turned Romans 8, 28 into I'm going to see it now. And so when Paul says to Christians, don't become weary in doing good, he's saying it for a reason. The temptation to become weary in doing good is strong. And especially in this day in which we expect to see results right away. As some of you know, I've lost around 40 pounds in the past year. There are days that it's fun to get on the scale because you see results. There are other times that it's depressing. And if you've ever been through that whole process, there are times you say, oh, forget it. Man, I just, I've, I've been cutting back. I'm starving. I just worked out hard. I thought, sure, I was going to go down. And I went up. And the temptation to say, forget this, is strong. But you have to be faithful to the process and trust God for the results. And that's the way the Bible's teaching here. Look at what he says here. Let us not, verse 9, grow weary of doing good for when? In due season. In other words, at the right time, when God determines, we will reap if we don't give up. If you give up, you're going to miss out on the reaping. So then, well, before I get into verse 10, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11 real quick. Hebrews chapter 11. Look at verses 13 through 16, and then I'm going to read to you verses 32 through 40. Remember, this is the Hall of Fame of Faith. This is where it lists men and women of great faith, and they're commended for their faith. Listen to what the Scripture says about these people who were commended for their faith. Verse 13 of Hebrews 11. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Does that mean God doesn't keep His promises? No. That means that some of God's promises and many of God's promises aren't for this life. That's the problem with the theology out there that talks about how we're overcomers and no weapon formed against me will prosper. And all these people that take passages that are dealing with heaven and dealing with spiritual things and they try to make it apply to this life. And scripturally, I'll show you, that's not true. Does God heal? Yes, God's still healing. Don't let anybody tell you that God's not healing anymore. But you cannot take it to the extreme of saying God wants everybody to be healed. Paul himself begged three times that God would remove whatever that weakness was in his body, the thorn in his flesh. And what did God tell Paul in 2 Corinthians 12? 
Exactly. The answer is no. My grace is sufficient for you. In order to keep you from becoming proud because of the revelations I've given you, I'm actually going to keep this in your weakness in your body. And Paul then says, then I will rejoice in my weaknesses because when I'm weak, he's strong and I'll have power through the weakness. You, there is truth that God heals. There is truth that God, the, some of our sicknesses is tied to some spiritual issues in our lives. That is a biblical truth. But there are people out there that will try to then make that a blanket statement for everyone. Oh, the reason you're sick is because, no, 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 be careful. You become one of Job's friends. Don't become one of Job's friends who can quote scripture, but don't know what God's doing in that person's specific life. Amen. There's a difference. And so look here, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. When is the harvest for these? people? It was after they left this earth. And this whole context of Galatians, you're going to reap the harvest. Most likely, you'll see the harvest in heaven. Now, as you're about to see in verses 32 and following, sometimes God will let you see some experiences of his miraculous power in this life. But that doesn't mean everybody will. Listen to Hebrews 11, verse 32 and following. He says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms. That's the kind of preaching I want to hear. All right. Enforced justice, obtained promises. There we go, Jim. Now that's what I want to hear. Not this other not receiving promises stuff. Stop the mouth of lions. Amen. Quench the power of the fire. All right. Escape the edge of the sword. Yes. They were made strong out of weakness. There we go. Became mighty in war. Put foreign armies to flight. Amen. No weapon formed against them. Then women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured. Wait a minute. I sure like the first part of this list. Keep listening. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mockings and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. Was that because they were lacking in faith? You know, some people say, well, the only reason you're going through that is because you don't have enough faith. Folks, here's the passage from Scripture that says these men and women of faith were commended for their faith. They're listed of men and women of tremendous faith, and they didn't get the miracle. Others were suffered mockings and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. And by the way, most people think that's talking about Isaiah, who most likely was put into a log and then they cut the log in half. And that's how they killed the prophet Isaiah. They were killed with the sword. Wait a minute. I just read how other people escaped the edge of the sword. How come these people were killed with the sword? Because God is not a formula. Exactly. What is it to you if I let him remain alive until I return? You follow me. But we've tried to turn following God into a formula. We've tried to figure out, figure God out and get the system. And if we can just figure out how to do this, we can play God for our benefit. And there's too much preaching out there today, folks, that's talking about these promises being fulfilled now. And I want you to see the whole of Scripture. Will God do this stuff? Yeah. Don't listen to people that say his miracles are done. No, no, no. That's not true. But watch out for the people in the other ditch who said that God has to do it if you have enough faith. 
Because these are men and women of faith. Look at what it says. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. In other words, they had to wait until we get it. They had to wait until we were allowed to be a part of it, and they're going to receive the harvest when we receive the harvest, and they had to wait. Folks, don't grow weary in doing good. And please understand, it will be a temptation. It will be a temptation to grow weary in doing good. But the same God that says in this world you will have trouble, and we have no trouble believing that promise, is the same God that says you will reap a big harvest if you don't give up. So believe that too. Now, going back to Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, he then says, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. Now, I just really felt like we can't skip over this either to get to the end of this book, because there's something here. Some people would say, wait a minute, Jim, uh, we're to do good to everyone, I understand, but shouldn't we spend more of our time doing good to those who are outside the faith so that they'll come into the faith? Shouldn't we as Christians be doing our good deeds before men that they would glorify our Father in heaven? And shouldn't we be doing most of our good for those outside the church? Why is Paul saying do your good inside the churches? Do good to everyone, but mostly to those inside. Yes? One for another. That's definitely a part of it. But there's a principle here that I want you to see that we're going to have to take some time to deal with because it's actually going to show how we in the church over the years have missed it. All right. There's a principle here from God's word that says if your good works are not seen in your own house, there is reason to question them everywhere else. I'm going to say that again. The scripture teaches and I'm going to show you in a lot of places that if your good works aren't seen in your own local vicinity, there's reason to question them everywhere else. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Go with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 7. First Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Paul says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, this is a spiritual leader in the church, typically elder, pastor, whatever term you want to use, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. And by the way, we don't take the time to break that all down, but that's not saying they can't been divorced. Too many people have tried to make it say that when it doesn't. It's literally in the Greek saying a one-woman man. This person's been proven to be above reproach as faithful to the person they're married to. All right? That, that's what it's talking about. Sober-minded, uh, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. And look at verse 4. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Then he goes on and say he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. And moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and into the snare of the devil. Do you see it? Before we worry about how you're looked at by the outsiders, who are we going to be looking at first? 
in the whole household. Now, there's a lot of reasons for this. This isn't a passage to say who's qualified and who's disqualified as much as it's also showing us a principle of what you've heard me talk about before. God's designed two major organisms, the family and the church. And his way for leading a family is the way he's designed for churches to be led. The government, if you will, or organization of the family is how he's designed the organization of the government of the church. In the family, you have parents. They're the elders. You have older kids who help with the family. They're the deacons. And in the same way, you have that kind of leadership in the, in the church, but we've kind of changed it in our churches nowadays. Most of our churches have congregational government, and that's just like a family with the kids have their vote. Remember I told you you don't get a vote? That's because too many churches have tried to run a family where the kids all have a vote. And biblically, there's a reason why the kids don't have a vote. Now, in a healthy family, you're going to say, where would you like to go to dinner? What would you like to do on vacation and get input? But you don't let them make all the calls. Those of you who have more than one kid, you know how many times you've heard, hey, let's take a vote. <laughs> we always told our kids, okay, mom and dad's vote worth, <coughs> worth two. You know, but at the same time, look at what he's saying. If a person has shown that he's not able to do it in his home, he's not ready to do it in the church. It's not, let's look at this guy and let's check his home so we can get him out of his position. That's how we've read it. We've tried to look at people and look back and disqualify them. No, it's saying start here. Before you pick this person to be a leader in a leadership, are they able to show that they know how to manage and lead and spiritually guide and direct? That doesn't mean that the kids never, I mean, they all, folks, if this is the thing that the kids rebel, then that means he's disqualified. God has to get off the throne. The question is, did you raise, huh? Exactly. He was a tremendous father, but the prodigal son says, I want nothing to do with you. That, has, that wasn't a blight on the father. But what we've done over the years is we've just trying to look for the rules. Again, we're trying to turn God into a formula. We've got God figured out. And folks, you need to know biblical truth, but you need to also know how to let the Spirit of God try to apply the truth in this situation. You don't throw the truth out the window, but now say, God, how does the truth apply here? And so look at, well, go to verse 8. Deacons, you too must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. In other words, are you living it? And let them also be tested first. I love that. You see, the examination is before they go into office. And also in the Greek, this is a continual testing. Then let them serve as deacons. If they prove themselves blameless, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, again, one woman, man, managing their children and their own household well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that's in Christ Jesus. Again, this principle, I'm going to read it to you again. If your good works are not seen in your house, there is reason to question them everywhere else. Go to 1 John chapter 4. Look at verses 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. And by the way, they're not talking about God. For he who does not love his brother whom he has, he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. All the way through the scripture, you'll see this principle. It needs to start where you are before it can be actually believed anywhere else. 
And so when Paul is saying in Galatians, we're to do good to everyone, but especially the household of faith, he's saying this principle again that's been there. Folks, if what your good works aren't seen at home, there's reason to question them everywhere else. Well, and now I have to go down a road that needs to be kind of least mentioned and let the Spirit of God take it from wherever he wants to. For too long, we've ignored this issue as pastors and church workers have ignored their families in serving the church and we've let them. I'm going to read it to you again. I wrote my notes here. For too long we've ignored this issue as pastors and church workers have ignored their families in serving the church and we have let them. And on top of that, not only have we let them, we have actually fueled it. How many a time has the church members been upset or the pastor wasn't there when I needed him? Ignoring the fact that he does have a family. He does have a responsibility there first. Well, what are we paying him for? Let me tell you a truth story. Years ago, before Becky and I had had Nicole, she and I uh, were young marrieds. Uh, I was in New Orleans at the time, and it was a time in uh, our journey where churches all over the country were contacting me to have me consider to come be their pastor. At one point, a uh, church down in Hollywood, Florida, contacted me, search committee. And the search committee chairman said, I understand you and your wife don't have any children. And I said, not, not yet. He said, are you hoping to have some? And I said, yes, sir, we are. When God shows us is the right time. He said, well, if you come as our pastor, I'm going to recommend that you not have children for two years. <laughs> I stopped and I said, hang on for a second. Let me ask you, did you just say that if I come as your pastor, you are going to determine when my wife and I have kids? He said, well, you can take it that way if you want. He said, but we just had a young pastor here and he wouldn't be at meetings because of a kid's birthday or whatever. And we we want you to be here for us first. After you've been here and you've worked hard and you've worked the field, then we'll let you have kids because we want to make sure that we're first. I said, let me ask you one more time. Are you really saying that you determine when my wife and I get to procreate? And he goes, if you want to look at it that way, and I said, sir, our interview's over. And I stopped it right there. And I was done. But you wouldn't believe. At least he was honest. At least he was honest. Because there's a lot of people that will lie to your face. But they really would rather you be there to the ignoring of, their, of, the, of your own family. Folks, take it from someone who's been in ministry for almost 30 years now. It's bad. It's real bad. And like I told you, Years ago, when our kids were younger and I was pastor at First Baptist in the Atlantic, I was wrestling with this issue. And I came home and I asked at dinner, dinner table one night, I said, if I had to choose between you and the church, who would I choose? I asked my kids. I said, guys, tell me, if I had to choose between you and the church, who would I choose? Nicole might have been like seven, eight at the most, maybe not even that old. She looked at me and she said, Daddy, you'd choose us if you didn't have a meeting. <laughs> and I'm telling you, folks, it hit me right between the eyes. And Becky didn't say a word, but she looked at me with the eyes as if to say, she's right. And, and exactly. And it's all my life I've been proud of myself and my priorities are God first, family second, church third. But my kids and my wife didn't feel like they were second behind God. They felt like they were third at best behind the church. So, folks, there's a principle here. There's a principle here. If what you say you are isn't making it to the people around you, there is real good biblical reason to question whether or not it's real at all. So, let it start in your house, then let it make its way to the local church, and then 
If God allows time, let it get beyond there and trust God will take care. What about the lost? Oh, you've got a small God if you think he needs you. He's got it for a reason why. See, because you know what? If I continue to raise my family the way that God's having it, I'm going to have a greater effect than just one person, me going out. But I've been doing is going to have an effect. Who knows where they're all going to end up and how they're affecting people now and how much people know our kids are different and our kids, our family life is different. And people want to come to our house. And you know what? Let us start where you are. Don't go try to reach the world. Let God, what he's doing in your life, start where you are and watch what God does. Oh, and by the way, you'll be reaching the world. You just didn't even know it. You didn't even know it. All right. Enough. We'll stop it for there. Doing good cannot be confined to the family of faith, but it must begin there. It must begin there. Hey, let's get into the last verses. Y'all have been listening slow tonight. So, <laughs> Paul's reference here in verse 11 uh, to his writing to them in the closing of the letter in his own handwriting actually was a very common thing for him to do. I want to show you real quick a few places. You see in verse 11, he says, see what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Most likely, uh, and I believe this, that he didn't write the whole letter. But he would write the closing in his own hand. He had a person, he would dictate the letter to them and they'd write it. And most likely Paul would write the end of it in his own hand. Um, now, we, of course, never have not ever seen the original manuscripts, so we can't tell whether or not, because I think we see the hand copies of these. But I think this is what's going on, because you'll see from Scripture what I mean. Go to 1 Corinthians 16 real quick. I think of that Go also for it. from, you know, Large letter. <laughs> yep, John Hancock. Yep. And, and he did that for a purpose. And well, I think in this instance, you're going to see, he doesn't say large letters in all of them, but in this one, it's, I think it's also kind of like bold print. Right. Yes, without, without question. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 21, at the end of 1 Corinthians, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Go to uh, Colossians. Just under this, you're in Galatians, go to Ephesians, Philippians, go to Colossians chapter 4. Look at verse 18. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. And one last one. I want you to see this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. This is one of the best ones. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of the genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So Paul did this in every letter. But like you just brought out, in this situation here, he's writing with large letters. Now, there are some people who say that's because of Galatians chapter 4, verse 15. You don't have to go back and look. But you remember how he said, you guys would have gouged out your own eyes and given them to me if you, if you, if you could. Uh, there's some that think that he wrote in large letters because his eyesight was bad. And that's a possibility. But it could also be that he's, look, I'm very serious about what I'm writing here in this end. I don't want you to miss what I'm writing. I usually wrote to everybody in the end to let them know that it was me writing this letter. And this was my signature, if you will. But I want you to not... Tune out at the end of the book. And so let's take a look at what he's saying. In verses 12 through 16, Paul reminds them that the Judaizers who would have them be circumcised do not really care for them, but are more concerned with the number of their quote-unquote converts, and because they also want to avoid the persecution that comes from following Christ. So we're going to bring out those two aspects. Again, Paul's saying to them in verses 12 through 16, the reason why the Judaizers are trying to win you over to their side has nothing to do with whether or not they care about you. They just want to put the notch in their belt. 
And they're afraid of the persecution that comes from the cross of Christ. All right. We have to be real careful um, ourselves in Christian work to not get caught up in the same temptation. We, sometimes we measure ourselves for good or bad against others in relationship to, to how many converts we have. How many baptisms? It, it's, it's sad because coming from a Baptist denominational background, every year they, you have to fill out the annual church profile and how many did you have compared to last year and all this stuff. And they'll give out awards for the church that baptizes the most. And folks, who controls whether or not anybody's baptized? Is that up to us or up to God? It's God. One plants another waters, but it's God who provides the increase. There's a danger what, what man's doing when they do that is, is they want to say, well, look how good they're doing. Or maybe there's an award. I'm going to work harder. Folks, there's nothing wrong with going out and sharing the good news and under the leadership of the Spirit, getting the message of Jesus Christ out there. But there's a danger in measuring converts to see who's doing a better job. Because if so, you have to then believe that Peter was better at it than Jesus. Jesus worked for three years in a full-time ministry. And how many did he have to show for it? Maybe 120? 500 is the most we can count at the end of that three years. Because remember, he appeared to 500. Peter had 3,000 believe in one sermon. So are you going to go down that road and say, Peter, had better at it than Jesus? No. Isaiah was told, you're going to preach and they're not going to listen. So we have to be real careful. We don't fall into this danger. Now, it's not apples to apples. It's because, you know... <laughs> These numbers are a wonderful joy because people are coming into faith and relationship with God versus being led into Judaism, you know, and that kind of stuff. But the opposite is Nineveh. No kidding. And that preacher couldn't get any credit for how good he preached. He didn't even want him to listen. Yeah, he, they all came forward and he said, oh, you know, we, we, we preach and no one comes forward and we go, oh, Jonah, Jonah preached. They all came forward and went, oh, you know, go ahead. It sure does. They start watering down the scripture to make you nailed it. To make entertain entertaining rather than preaching. The exactly. Be faithful to reach the ones God brings in your path. Be looking. Be faithful, and just trust God for the results. And again, remember, the first will be last, and the last will be first. We may find out at the harvest who the real best ones were, and it may not be the people we've been patting on back and giving the plaques. That is the only accurate tally book. God has. That's true. God has the only accurate tally book. But now at the same, look at verse 15. Paul says something interesting here. He says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. All right, let me read it to you again. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but a new creation. In other words, he says, the issue is not who won, the circumcision group or the uncircumcision group, but whether or not there's changed lives. That's the issue. Our lives being changed. So when I go and deal with churches and I have to remind them, look, I'm coming to help you become healthy. Don't see what I'm doing as a church growth plan. Don't when I come in and I teach the eight principles of a God centered church, I have to remind them, look, I'm talking about church becoming healthy and there will be growth. There will be health in a church. There will should be changed lives. That's the issue we're looking at. Not your numbers compared to what it was or how many. I look. God may have your church be one that has them come to know him and then he moves them on and you don't ever see the results. And how many churches get all upset about that because they're getting saved, but they're not staying here. Well, who said they're supposed to stay there? Yeah, I've heard too many churches talk about we get them in the front door and we lose them out the back door. Well, if you understand your Bible, there's no back door. 
The one, Paul says, I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will finish it. Is there such thing as a back door if someone's truly saved? No. Well, they need to be discipled. Yes, they do. But that doesn't mean that they're all supposed to be discipled there. And that same God that will save you and call it and put you in a place where he wants you to be can line you up with someone to disciple you. Disciple the one God puts in your path. But if they move on, don't do what you got to do to keep them there. Go ahead. Isn't that a little reference to the law? It sure is. It's not about circumcision. It isn't. But see, the Judaizers thought it was about circumcision. The people that were on the other side saying, well, <laughs> well, we won because they're a faith now, not circumcision. And Paul says, don't get caught up in that. I'm not going to boast on either way. I'm going to boast in nothing but the cross of Christ. Right. You got it. The first four commandments, if we kind of focused on that relationship. All the others take care of themselves. Exactly. But I want to go down this road here for a second. The, the, Paul references that not only, well, look at verse 12. It's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. This persecution, don't, I don't want you to miss out on what the Judaizers were wrestling with. All right. Their fear of being persecuted for being a follower of Christ was a real fear. All right. The Jews did not mind Christianity if it were simply a sect of Judaism. If, if Christianity were just a branch of Judaism, they had no problem with that. Just as long as they follow the Mosaic law, as long as they're circumcised, they're doing all the stuff we're doing. We, we don't care, you know, if you think that's the Messiah, as long as you're still doing all this stuff. But Christians were teaching that salvation came by faith alone in Christ to anyone who believes. They don't have to follow the Jewish law. And this made the Jewish leaders upset enough to kill. And they did. All right. The Romans didn't mind Christianity if it were simply a sect of Judaism. They didn't have any issue with Christianity as long as it was a sect of Judaism. Because why? They had Judaism under their thumb. They gave the Jews some freedom in their religious practices, but ultimately it was Rome who was their God. I could prove it to you. Go to John chapter 19. Look closely at what the Jews said in John 19 verses 12 through 16. John 19 verses 12 through 16. This is when Jesus is under trial. It says, from then on, verse 12 of John 19, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So then when Pilate heard those words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement. And in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it, it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. How about that? They admitted it. They said, we claim to be followers of God, but actually you're the one feeding us, Rome. You're our God. We have no king but Caesar. Can you imagine? Now... Christians yes, then. I just heard that in the Democratic Convention. Sorry to bring politics in, but we just heard that three times they denied God. Yep. Shouldn't surprise us. I was waiting for the priesthood to crow. It should scare all of us. Yeah. 
that's another whole topic we'll probably get into next week when we get together. But look closely. Christian, Christians, you have to keep in mind, though, would not declare Caesar to be God and king. Now, this was a very serious thing. Once a year, Roman citizens had to come to a ceremony where they declared Caesar to be God. If you didn't, you were put to death. So persecution for the cross of Christ was severe. And for that, many Christians were killed. Now you can see why not only the fear of persecution was so strong for the Judaizers, they were Jewish and under Rome's authority. But you know who it was even stronger for? Paul himself. Because Paul, if you go back and look at his heritage, was a Jew of the Jews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And on top of that, he was a Roman citizen, born a Roman citizen. You want to talk about someone who understood this persecution? He wasn't throwing stones from a distance at these Judaizers. He knew full well the persecution that was going to come because of his faith in Jesus Christ and his following of nothing but the cross of Christ. That made him an out with the Jews and they wanted to kill him. And it made him an out with the Romans and they wanted to kill him. Well, I'm not going to take the time to turn there. But in Acts chapter 9, you want to write that down and look at it later. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 16, you'll see Paul's conversion where he meets Jesus. And Jesus says to him, why are you persecuting me? <laughs> Jesus takes it personally when people go after his children. That's a wonderful thing. But on top of that, when he gets blinded and then he's told to go to this town and meet this man Ananias. Of course, God then speaks to Ananias and says, I'm sending this guy Paul, actually Saul at the time, to come to you. And I want you to heal him of his blindness. It's so funny that Ananias says, don't you know who that is? Yeah, that's so great. I love that. I mean, think about this. This man can hear God speak so clearly. He gets a specific word that a certain man is coming to his house and you're going to lay hands on him. This God does speak that clearly, by the way. Yet he's so comfortable in his relationship with God and he's still dust that he would actually say to God, maybe you didn't have good advice, but that's not who you, you know, do you know who that is? That's hilarious to me. I think that's great. And the neat thing about God is, is he probably laughed too and said, yeah, Ananias, I think I know who it is. You know, I knit him in his mother's womb, you know, but at the same time, he then, God tells Ananias, listen closely, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. The road that God had for Paul was a life of continual suffering. So when Paul says, don't go weary in doing good, he wasn't just preaching to us. He, uh, he knew. Acts chapter 20, well, again, write this down, look at it later. Verses 20 through 23, Acts 20, 20 through 23. Um, he's heading to Jerusalem. The Christians are saying, don't go, don't go. Because, you know, the prophet Agabus had just come and tied Paul with his own belt, or tied his own hands with his own belt and said, thus says the Lord, they're under this belt, is going to face this kind of suffering in Jerusalem. And, and they're saying, no, that means don't go. And Paul says, why are you breaking my heart? I don't know specifically how it's going to play out, but I know this much. The Holy Spirit warned me that everywhere I go, Hardship and face trials and imprisonment are what's my lot in life. I understand that, but I'm still going to do what he's leading me to do. But what do we do in Christianity if we think it's going to be bumpy? Well, maybe we're not supposed to do it. Isn't that what we do? Well, it might not work out so good. No, that can't be what God wants because he's going to cause all things to work for good. Yeah, be careful. The question isn't can we do it or will it be hard? The question is, did he say it? But I want you to see one place, Acts 14, because this example 
actually had some application to the Galatians. Acts chapter 14, verses 19 through 23. In Acts 14, verse 19, it says, Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. This is in Lystra, by the way. They're in the town of Lystra. The Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. And when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. <laughs> How many of us would have headed back into the city? And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city he had made many and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. This is where that crowd came from. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with praying and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Does anybody realize that this stoning and being left for dead happened in Galatia? A lot of the readers of this book would probably have known of that episode. I'm sure word spread. But look at what Paul says in verse 17. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Guys, I, as I write this end of this book to you in large print, I want you to understand that I'm serious about what I'm saying. I don't want you getting caught up in this circumcision issue. I don't want you getting bewitched. I don't want you giving someone cut in on you as we've seen in this study. I don't want you to fall away from the grace that we have in Christ. I want you to hear what I have to say. And, and I want you to be faithful to what God says, trusting him, believing his promises. Don't grow weary in doing good. You will reap if you don't give up. Yeah, the Judaizers, they act like they care about you, but they're more concerned with two things. One, getting a notch on their belt because they got you as a convert. But the real issue is they are afraid of the persecution of Christ. I'm not. And I've proven it. And I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. So if you want to give me trouble, what can you do more to me that hasn't already been done? So I want you to hear this letter and respond in obedient faith to God who's begun this good work in you. And I'm confident, Galatians chapter 5, verse 10, I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view and that God will deal with those who are causing you the harm. And then he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. In other words, I'm just going to wrap it up by saying this to you. As God's grace was with Paul's spirit, may it be so with yours and mine as we walk with Jesus daily in obedient faith and rest in his grace not our own efforts. I can't wait to get to Ephesians in a couple of weeks when we get there and start of April, in the first week of April and we start looking at the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ and what it means to be in Christ. We're going to spend a lot of time in Ephesians looking at what does it mean to be in Christ. So Fred, you're going to get your Bible study after all. But at the same time, I want us as we wrap up Galatians to really, folks, as we've, we've been doing this study through Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, to just start fresh and look at what does the Bible really say? What does it mean to be a Christian? Not what the church has said, not what we've been taught all our years. What does the Bible say? What does it mean to be in Christ, to walk in his spirit, to keep in step with the spirit and to have the life of the fullness of the spirit of Christ? Where that's what it really means to walk as a Christian. 
Not the rules the church gave us to follow. Not the formula of God that everybody thought that they've got their different formulas. What does it mean to really trust in him? And Paul has started this out for us here. God through Paul in the book of Galatians to say, you take your eyes off of your efforts and you put them totally in full dependence and faith in Jesus Christ. And if you start there, God will continue what he's doing to bring it into what he wants it to look like. Let me pray for us. Father, again, thank you so much for this chance to study this word uh, that you've given us and have kept for us so that we could not only be taught it, but apply it. Father, I thank you for the fact that as I look around this room, I see faces of people that have known you for a long time. But at the same time, many of us in this room, myself very much included, have had our view of you and what it means to be a Christian shaped by the rules and the formulas. And now we're getting set free into what it means to walk in the freedom that we have been given in Jesus Christ. And it's for freedom that we've been set free. Lord, I pray that we would not fall prey and go back to the bondage of legalism or thinking that we have to earn your approval. And as we move forward in a few weeks to the study of Ephesians, continue your work of showing us who we are in you, what it means to be in Christ. But for tonight, we just stop and say thank you for this wonderful preservation of this awesome book that has been used by you to help us to get freer anyway. We're free, but we don't fully experience it. Experience some of the freedom that is already ours in Jesus Christ. And Lord, may people in our church, we go to different churches all over this country, the people that are listening online right now. May people in our church ask us to give reason for the hope that lies within us. We pray this in your name. Amen.